You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with the pre-holiday edition of the M Squared TechCast. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, we're we're going to scare you half to death in two different ways today. So uh, we've got guests Dan Lorman and Richard Steen, job, both you know? cybersecurity experts with us today. And uh, they're going to talk a little bit about this uh, Russian uh, hack of government and other systems that we've heard about. Uh, and then uh, give us a little bit of a recap of 2020 and some predictions for 21 as well. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Be All right. So it's officially called Solar Winds because that's the name of the actual brand of the of the company that did the software that apparently all the government folks use and a lot of other folks, big institutions. Uh, and I've been reading a lot about it for the last week, and and I you know flag stuff and send it to y'all. I'm sorry that Memphis jaw comes out. I can't seem to lose it. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about. Let's just assume that. People just know there was a Russian hack, and that's all they know. Richard, why don't you kind of give us some background on that? Yeah, sure. And I'll try and go through the entire timeline as, as I know it now. So sometime in 2019, a company that sells network management software to most of the world was targeted by uh, a couple of different Russian groups, as a matter of fact. One was poking around, and they weren't quite successful. The other may have worked off of what they learned from the B team. And the A team came in and they uh, basically got the signing certificate for uh, software updates and compromised the software update server at the company called SolarWinds. Uh, there was even a report that the password to get into that server was SolarWinds123. Oh, geez. <laughs> at any rate, over... You know, the, about four or five months, they successfully implanted this update. And then starting in March, it was pushed out to what we believe is 18,000 customers of wow. SolarWinds, um, which, you know, customers of SolarWinds includes 425 of the Fortune 500, all the branches wow. of the military, the Pentagon and the Office of the President, State Department, etc. And then uh, about uh, two weeks ago now, um, uh, December 7th, we learned that FireEye had been breached and they announced that they suspected these Russian hackers had stolen all of their hacking tools. FireEye, security vendor that had acquired Mandiant, uh, which does penetration testing for their customers, has their own toolkit. It's very worrisome if Russian hackers have stolen their top of the line toolkit. So FireEye immediately was completely transparent, told us all about it, attributed the attack to the Russians, um, or at least, you know, gave us enough indicators that we knew who they're talking about, and then um, released indicators of compromise, digital signatures for all of their tools. So you could immediately update your own security to block FireEye from attacking you. And then only a week later, 
<laughs> we discovered uh, probably because FireEye was digging around and was able to look at the actual malware used of all these other government agencies that had been successfully breached for months, going all the way back to March. So basically the Russian hackers were sitting on these networks, grabbing information supposedly, listening to emails on Office 365 and other servers, uh, and basically owning state parts of the State Department, uh, Commerce Department, DHS, maybe CISA, which is the security team inside DHS, um, and Nas National Institute of Health and the Treasury Department. So enough critical uh, agencies for us to get all excited about this kind of attack. So, and you know, they they leave anything out, Dan? There's so many little details to this. Not much. You did a great job. I mean, it's, it's just the, the scope of this thing is tremendously large, um, global. And, uh, you know, as we were talking before the show, you know, we don't really know what shoe's going to drop next, you know, what's going to come down the line, you know, what, you know, how, how badly this impacted different companies around the world, what were the impacts for them. But we do know it's, it's tremendously um, impactful in, in uh, many, many ways in government, a um, lot of talk in Washington right now about, you know, obviously we're in the midst of a change in administrations, you know, what does this mean for that? What does it mean for the Biden team coming in in January? Um, so it's it's not it's not a great time for this to happen. It's never a good time to get hacked. But, uh, you know, it's right at the end of the year and there's a lot of uh, a lot of heads rolling right now. A lot of people really uh, are very, very worried. Yeah, everybody's uh, spending long hours trying to track down. CISO was fantastic, and they released all of the indicators compromise and, and the good methodology to determine if you'd been breached. They gave all the government agencies about 16 hours to report if they had been hacked. Um, by Monday of uh, this past week, they had not gotten all those reports, no surprise. Yeah. Um, and then Microsoft came out. And they know of 40 Microsoft customers that have been successfully breached. Um, they won't tell us who those are, of course, because they have to work with them before they have their own disclosures. But they did break down the attacks. And only about 17 were against government agencies. 18 were against other technology companies. So there could very well be, in this supply chain, other technology companies that are being leveraged in order to attack other companies. Some of the stuff I was hearing from other folks, I mean, obviously this has been a big talk point on the talk shows and also all these articles, was that they sort of saved all the defense-related stuff until the very last because then they figured they were going to get discovered once they hit those targets. Uh, and so they were, this was people were calling it just classic espionage, not necessarily cyber warfare. And I know, Richard, you wrote a book about that. What, what do you think of those uh, premises? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm getting tired of hearing pundits saying uh, this is all okay, this is espionage as usual, um, you know, bad on us for not being better prepared. Um, I don't like that. You wouldn't like it if you were blamed, you know, for being sexually assaulted because of the clothing you wore or for having your house broken into because you let, had a, a bad lock on it, right? It's still the fault of the attacker. Always is, right. always will be. Um, so I don't like that, that whole approach, right? I do like to criticize government preparedness um, <laughs> and government, government agencies. I don't like everybody else to pile on. Um, this is, 
we don't know the repercussions. We don't know if it's just espionage. We don't know if it was the whole point was reconnaissance before a more malicious type of attack, such as Ukraine saw, where there's certainly a lot of reconnaissance before their power grid was shut down Christmas of 2015. So we've got, uh, like Dan said, the other shoe is going to drop and it'll keep all of us busy, you know, reporting on it and trying to understand what's going on and trying to explain it uh, for weeks to come. Yeah, what what do you think uh, might have happened in terms of insertion of malware um, in this attack? Like things where they could, you know, turn off traffic lights uh, or, you know, turn off utilities or, you know, the, the really nightmare scenario stuff. Yeah, a lot of that's been going on for about four years already in the power grid. So uh, Sandworm has been installing the same tools that they used uh, in Ukraine throughout our power grid for a number of years. Uh, which is worrisome. It even falls in line with the so-called deterrence that even the Biden administration is, when uh, Biden made his announcement, he basically was threatening retaliation um, and doubling down on deterrence. He said defense isn't enough. Um, And I, you know, I'm definitely one who falls in the camp of, no, we just need to be really good at defending and we should beef up defense first uh, before we think about things like threatening to shut off, you know, a foreign country's power, right? Just as they could do to us, it'd be a very effective deterrence against the United States if they had that capability, less so effective against any other country in the world because they don't rely on their power grid as much as we do. Some of the folks, again, I know uh, maybe this will, uh, you won't agree, but uh, they were saying that this malware is so embedded that just burn the whole thing down and start from scratch because you're never going to be able to get it out. You, do you think it's that severe? Take that one, Dan. No, I, I don't. And I, you know, some of the articles I've been reading, but people I've been talking to, it's it's more like SolarWinds is, is it's it's getting you in the door. I think a lot of the fear is what happened when people went sideways. So so it's like once you're in the house, now what happens? And so I think a lot, I think there's a pretty good ability to to diagnose this, to know who's been hit, to find the DLL, you know, to find the the um, you know, track this down and say, am I a victim? Am I not? You know, do I have solar winds? Do I have the software? You know, it, you know. But the, but the the harder part is okay. Now they've been in your house. What else have they done? What other tools have they installed? Where else have they gone? What other stealthy things have they done in your environment? And I think there's a lot of fear around. Okay. Um, we talk about other shoe to drop or other things that may have happened. They've been in there as, as, as Richard mentioned for months. So what's happened during that timeline and, and where else have they gone? What other tool sets have they loaded up? What other actions have they taken? What other back doors have they put in? I think that's a bigger issue. Um, so if you're going to, I would, I would not advise burning everything else down, but I think maybe somebody who really felt like they're everywhere or this is so bad. It's like, do they have the ability to know what else happened once they got in the house, if you will? Hmm. Yeah, and CISA's first recommendation was if you have solar winds, to shut it off. And yeah. I thought that was not good advice because you're going to need solar winds to track down some of these infections and to understand what's going on on your network. So it's probably not a good idea to just shut off your infrastructure like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, root around, find it and find out what it did. And then you have to do the forensics uh, to figure out what happened over the last six months. So what do you think the Biden administration is going to do? Uh, Clearly and Trump continues to deny it's the Russians while everybody else says it is. 
So I think the Biden folks are going to take a much different tact on this. What do you think they may do next? Or what when they get? Well, it's about a month now, but when they get installed here in about a month, what are they going to do? Richard, you want to start? Yeah, you know, back when Obama was elected, I wrote up a whole um, a litany of things that they should do. <clears throat> they didn't do any of that in eight years, and obviously the Trump administration didn't do any of that. And uh, I'm afraid, you know, you can kind of always predict what the Biden administration will do by saying it's a continuation of what the Obama administration did, right? At least, you know, things were fairly stable back then, and most people are happy that we're going to get back to sanity. Uh, but for cyber, doing what you did in the past is usually the definition of insanity. Um, so there's, you know, they should really take a fresh look at this. And there's been push for somebody at the top for years, you know, a cabinet level position, a congressional approved position, um, you know, super cyber czar. Inside the federal government, that is never going to work, right? A cyber czar doesn't have budgetary control. They can't hold back somebody's budget for not following their instructions. Um, they, you know, all they can do is issue recommendations that you should follow. And then maybe GAO uh, or OMB can follow up and say, hey, you should have followed the cyber czar's recommendations. And now we're going to do some sort of punitive action because you didn't. So, you know, I, from day one, it's when I think of the largest organizations in the world, the way to get uh, to jumpstart your security program is to push responsibility for security down to the actual people that do security. And that we could do in the federal government. So you could tell every agency head, every cabinet person that there'll be repercussions to your budgets, your, uh, you know, con your um, congressional efforts and all the rest. If you are breached like OPM was, and that's never happened. Everybody always gets out of a jail, uh, get out of jail free card. Um, there are no repercussions in the military. A breach doesn't lead to a court martial, never has, probably never will. And yet, if you're in cyber command or if you're in the, you know, each of the uh, separate branches and your responsibility is preventing the bad guys from getting in, if you let your guard down physically, you would be court martialed. Why not get court-martialed if you let your guard down and don't follow best practices in the cyber realm? Yeah, I would just add real quick, Mike. I, you know, I, I think I'm probably not as doom, quite as doom and gloom as, as Richard is on that. But um, the, we mentioned earlier the Cyber Solarium Commission. There's a bipartisan commission that has a lot of recommendations. You know, really, cybersecurity should not be, in my experience, in my years working with in Michigan, but also with Homeland Security in the White House, it by and large has not been a partisan issue. Um, and, you know, I, I would say, you know, clearly you could argue, you know, which president did more, you know, going back to Bush, you know, you could talk about, you know, what happened after 9-11, you could talk about the Obama administration, talk about now the new Biden administration, of course, the Trump administration. Um, reality is, is, you know, with maybe an exception being the whole discussion we mentioned earlier about Russia, you know, and, and was Russia involved or not, and, and Trump kind of, you know, saying they weren't. Um, by and large, I, I think there's a lot of consensus on the kinds of things that need to happen. I think people want to see a roadmap. Um, I, I look. I would agree with Richard. We mentioned earlier the Solarium Commission um, is is a pretty good roadmap, and if they follow those recommendations, they would make a lot of progress. I think there will be some senior appointments in cybersecurity in the Biden administration. Um, whether they make more, are more successful than the Trump administration remains to be seen. 
Yeah, I was I was going to ask Richard, what would be different in terms of how agencies manage themselves if the kind of accountability that you seek um, was in place? What do you think would be different? Yeah, they would uh, reprioritize some of their technology investments. Um, so, you know, purchasing inside government is really difficult. Um, you know, you've got giant budgets, right? Billion dollar budgets for IT stuff. And you spend it, unfortunately, they tend to spend on their favorite projects. So it might be digital transformation. We're going to move to the new government cloud. Um, we're going to do all these great things. But I would take any opportunity to, to deploy new systems to deploy them securely and build a framework for that. How are you going to monitor it? How are you going to patch it and update it? Uh, going forward, of course, the entire world is going to be looking very closely at patching and updating software and how do we secure that process. You know, we've known about these vulnerabilities in updates at least since Flame, you know, which is an NSA piece of malware that that masked as a Microsoft update. Um, and and all the way to NotPetya, which was the most damaging cyber uh, event in our history, which also used software updates from a little accounting company in order to take down Ukraine and most of the rest of the world. Yeah, 10 years ago, you and I were talking about this as a book theme when we did our original Cyber Stiletto book. We were trying to figure out what attack vector we were going to use, and we were discussing, uh, well, the updates. Everybody just automatically clicks, yes, update, whether or not it's you should or not, right? Yeah, updates, supply chain vulnerabilities, uh, putting chips, you know, on boards in China before they're shipped. Don't forget, all of our computers come from China, right? So we we talk about, oh, don't buy Huawei, and yet we all get our our MacBooks shipped directly from a factory in China. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, the other thing, too, that you talked about was Cyber Command. Isn't it their function to defend and be offensive as well? I mean, can't... I've heard that stories that they've got incredible capabilities within the Russian network too. They, if they want to shut them down, they can. Is that true or not? My understanding of Cyber Command's capabilities is uh, a little more opaque than that of the NSA. The NSA, for sure, is deeply embedded. Um, as people start talking about the Me Tooism, hey, it's okay for Russia to do that to us because we're doing it to them, even though we have. No evidence of it. We now all kind of agree we must be, right? Because we're better than they are, right? We've got a budget that's probably, you know, the NSA's budget is probably as big as the entire military budget of Russia. Um, so they're doing something with all those people and all that money. So here's a question. Did the NSA see the solar winds attacks in the planning phases? And did they know all about it? And could they not say anything about it because it would have revealed their sources and methods. That'll be an interesting story hmm. if it breaks. Yeah, and, it, and did they, well, did, they tip, did they tip off FireEye as well? I mean, there's a lot right. of other subplots, you know, and and you know, they can use third parties and and you know. Oh yeah, because I, I, you're Dan, you're a former NSA guy. I mean, obviously you can't share a lot of the secrets, but uh, what Richard said, do you feel like they have those capabilities? I think Richard's right. I mean, I, I think. You know, the old thing, first thing they teach you in NSA, you don't know what you don't know. So, I mean, I don't have a top secret clearance anymore. I haven't worked there. I haven't had a, a, a TSSI clearance since the late 90s. So, but I, a lot of friends work in that community. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, I know we have capabilities. I, I you know, obviously we won't talk about specifics. I, the reality of it is that um, 
this is going on. Um, and, and a lot of the smaller players are trying to get into the game. I mean, more and more stories around the world. Nation states feel like this, you know, the Internet could be the, the great equalizer. They, it, it's, it, it's, you know, they don't have billions of dollars to build nuclear submarines and, and you know, aircraft carriers and, and you know, satellites and, and put people on the moon and everything else. But a lot of them feel like, hey, I can compete in cyberspace. So, you know, virtually every country in the world that's out there, uh, you know, has a program trying to do something to hack somebody. So it, it's going on. It's happening all over the place. And I do believe we have a lot of capability within the U.S. as well. So I'll just leave it at that. Matthew. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So um, so so what um, what do you think ought to happen going forward here from the. Uh, from the standpoint of business, uh, not so much government, but business, how, how do businesses protect themselves better from this kind of thing? Well, I think the most immediate uh, change is going to be, we're going to look at the signing of software, digital signatures of software updates and how can we build trust back in? Cause right now it's, you just set up a couple APIs and you just download the updates when they're ready. Um, and it's been forever best practice to update them automatically. Just do it, you know, because <laughs> they're patching some vulnerability they've discovered. And obviously that is not wise. And we have to do something more to trust that. I'm wondering, Dan, what do you think about it? You know, I, I imagine a third party. That's what we have PKI for. We could have a trusted certificate authority that's signing the other the other ones. Um, but it would have that would just centralize all that control and that would be a target for a nation state to go after. And then they get update everybody with, with false stuff. So not quite sure how to, how to fix us. It's hard because it's always people processing and technology. And so people always say, can't you build a perfect technology? Can't you, but you know, somebody has got to use it, you know, and uh, there's truth in that, you know, old adage, you know, if you, if you had a perfectly secure computer, nobody could do anything. Um, And it's, it's, you know, even if you have a great technology, you know, the processes can be flawed. The people could be thought, flawed. You know, we know what happened. Again, some people call him a hero. Some people call him the spot, you know, a, a, a traitor. But, you know, Snowden. I mean, there's so many stories of people, um, you know, going back decades, going back, you know, in our history of our country. So, I mean, I think that's there's always going to be vulnerabilities. And and um, I, I like the idea, Richard. I think we have to definitely improve that whole patching process. The, the update process, I think more needs to be done there. Um, but, you know, I, and as soon as somebody tells me they have the perfect technology that can't be hacked, I just laugh because, yeah. you know, <laughs> you've got, you've got the people side, you've got the process side, somebody can get in there, somebody can, a trusted insider can do something that can, that can cause the problem. Well, that's the Snowden situation. He was the trusted insider, right? Correct, exactly. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Well, we've got about five minutes left. I know it's that much time, but let's talk a little bit about 2021. Obviously, this is going to be with us probably for most of 2021, right? Yep. Fixing this problem. But beyond that, well, what do you see developing in the cybersecurity space next year? I'll start. You know, I'll start. Go for it. You should jump in. I just, I just published a blog. People can go to it. I think, uh, Mike, you guys are going to um, – post this, but the top 21 security predictions for 2021, these aren't my predictions. These are the, uh, the industry. What I do is catalog every year, you know, everybody from, you know, trend micro to watch, watch guard to fire eye going right down the list. They all come out with really good reports. I'm actually an advocate for them. I know other people, not so much. We had a horrible year predicting in 2020 because COVID hit us and nobody was predicting COVID-19. 
Um, but they're a really good list of items um, that a lot of research have gone into these. They aren't just sticking your you know finger in the air and just saying which way the wind's blowing and, and guessing. Um, a lot of a lot of trends around specifically, you know, people working from home. COVID-19 has changed all of our processes. So what 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 is that caused in way of challenges for us? Um, issues related to the cloud, issues related to mobile, which we saw last year as well. Um, but certainly more and more challenges with ransomware that have just exploded. Uh, those are all just some of the predictions that are listed in the, uh, the top 21 security predictions for 2021. Yeah, we'll be sure to post those this week. I just this morning you sent that to me, and I didn't get a chance to post it yet, but we'll get that up there. Richard, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, uh, I I don't like writing predictions, right? Because I used to do that, and some of them would eventually come true. But anyways, it, it takes a lot of guts, right? Maybe I'm I'm getting too old to have the guts. Um, but one thing I can tell you for sure is that we saw a gigantic surge in phishing attacks at the beginning of COVID, right? 600% increase using, you know, just social engineering around tax uh, credits and employment checks and all the rest. Um, And we've seen some ransomware that came out of that, which would have been the early uh, intent of the attackers. But some of those attacks were probably successful enough that the attackers got a foothold. So it's easy to predict that in the first three months of 2021, we're going to see a lot of breach announcements for huge data sets, very damaging to the companies that it happened to. Uh, And that's just a fallout from what happened in March of 2020. The other thing that that I'm kind of happy about is that the uh, technology around working from home, which did open up a lot of exposures, right? Because you took your employee base and you pushed them all out to their home networks, which weren't very safe. Uh, It's going to change the way that employers treat the technology that their employees use. And we're going to start seeing employers invest in home technology. So they're going to maybe, you know, double up on bandwidth. So every so, you, so the employee doesn't have to worry about all the kids being on their Zoom calls for school at the, during business hours. Uh, and adding security in, of course, sassy being the, the term of the day, um, and giving us more and more capabilities. It's going to be great. We're all going to have great microphones, great webcams, um, uh, dual internet access. I've got my new router behind me there. So that's just serves my little writing shed. Uh, satellite backup. It's going to be great. Yeah, that's one of the stories I just posted from Forbes that talking about not necessarily the cybersecurity aspect, but the, now that we've all got exposed to the fact that we really can work from home, at least the white collar workers can, obviously, if you're an electrician or a plumber, you can't do that. But are they going to want to go back to the office? And if not, then what's that going to mean? Like you just said, for all that equipment, we're going to be selling people to work from home, right? Yep. Yep. And people can move around finally, you know, so and it seems to be having an impact on certain real estate in certain areas, right? Tahoe is booming, right? The, the people are just moving from the Bay Area to Tahoe because they can, because they might as well. Um, I know my uh, my stepdaughter's moving for, you know, a few months to Colorado because she has to work remotely for University of Georgetown. It's it's great. It opens things up for people. And I want to get my bar stool set up in Key West, and I'm going to have the mic there and, uh, you know, all the stuff so I can sit there and, and drink my mimosas and things and uh, and do my show, right? That'd be perfect. And, and you better have palm trees blowing in the wind behind you. 
That's it. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm looking out my window now at the snow. That's why I was thinking of Key West. So. Well, and, and what do you tell the bosses that still insist on people coming to the office, still insist on FaceTime? I've I've seen people criticizing those bosses, saying, you know, your your times are numbered. You can't yeah. insist on people coming into the office. So yeah. new managers of the future will be good at doing Zoom calls. All right. Well, we're out of time. I want you guys, uh, we, the traditional shameless plug. I know you've been on the show many times. So, Richard, let's start with you since you're on camera right now. Uh, how do people reach out to you, get more information, work with you, that sort of thing? Yeah, just, uh, start by following me on Twitter, at CyberWar, and I'll see you there. If you're a vendor, I'll definitely follow you back. If you're in the security, I'll follow you back. Okay, Dan, working from that office in where are you, Okamos? I think it is. Oh, old Michigan. Oh, so, okay. yeah, All right. at, at, uh, at GovCSO, and uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn as well. It's the same as Richard. Uh, happy to respond to and uh, certainly visit our, my blog for Government Technology Magazine, Lorman on Cybersecurity. And now, Dan, uh, former state CISO, is working for Security Mentor. Been yep. doing that for, what, four years now? Something like That's that? It. Just over six. This really has it been that long? Yeah, been Time does fly, doesn't it? Thanks All so much. right. Well, very informative. Thank you guys for joining us here at the end of the year. We'll get you both back on here real soon in 2021 when our next situation arises. Right, Matt? Absolutely. Okay, take us out. All right. Thanks very much to uh, both Dan Lorman and Richard Steenan, our resident cybersecurity experts. We'll be back in just a minute with another uh, another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast on MITechnews.tv, podcastdetroit.com, and wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with our pre-holiday edition of the M Squared TechCast. Well, we just scared the pants off you with uh, cybersecurity risks. And now we have our very own infectious disease expert. Uh, he doesn't have a doctorate, but we call him Dr. Doom anyway. Um, <laughs> certainly by virtue of experience, he's got everything but the dissertation. Um, Fred, welcome to the show. It's Fred Brown, um, noted epidemiology expert. Well, I think actually he does have a PhD, don't you, Fred? I do not. I have an MBA. Oh, okay. All right. I, I, I thought you did. All I've, right. got, I've got three, we'll three undergraduate degrees. We'll still call you Dr. Brown. And, and <laughs> so we, now we have a different virus we're going to be talking about. Uh, and a different vaccine. And also. a different vaccine, yes. What I One of the things that uh, I know Moderna just got uh, FDA approved, I believe, last Friday, and one of the things I was asking if you could do any kind of comparison between the two that are now on the on the market, as it were, with Pfizer, I know you have to store it 
ungodly cold temperatures, and that's a really bad situation. Whereas I'm told that the Moderna one is more like like a refrigerator freezer type temperature. And so that would make it a lot easier for the healthcare providers and the drugstores. I just saw the CVS president on TV this morning. He's talking about how they like to use their gazillion CVS stores to get that out. So uh, how do those two vaccines compare? Because I have a lot of people asking me, which one should I take? And I go, I think I don't know whether there's really a difference, but you can't mix them, right? You can't take the Pfizer and then the Moderna. It's got to be one or the other, right? That's right. That's all we've tested for right now. I, I think it's likely that within a technology platform uh, that you might be able to take them both, but uh, it's not it's not advised because we haven't tested it yet. Uh, I think eventually we, we might get there, but it's not really that important as it turns out. If you want, I can show you some of the data that was presented sure. to the FDA. Uh, we can certainly talk about some of those supply chain stuff. I'm, I'm working on that extensively, and there is a big difference in the supply chain complexity with uh, Pfizer versus uh, Moderna. And you're right. It, it's all about the freezing. The, the Pfizer, uh, the Pfizer uh, vaccine is much more fragile. Uh, than the Moderna vaccine. The Moderna vaccine, they uh, kind of in June, July last year, uh, this this year, excuse me, they actually changed one of the key ingredients. Uh, and as a result of that, they were able to move from a minus 70 environment, minus 70 degrees Celsius, so that's almost minus 100 <laughs> Fahrenheit. Uh, to, <laughs> I'm a European, so I always think about centigrade. But uh, uh, yeah, the, the, so uh, 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 they were able to move from that minus 94 Fahrenheit uh, environment to a minus, to, to about, to, to a uh, plus four. I'm sorry, my, minus four uh, Fahrenheit situation. So that 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 was really helpful. And uh, while while Pfizer did not make that change, they decided to keep going because they were a little bit behind Moderna. They didn't have as much manufacturing um, understanding as Moderna did uh, when they were rolling things out. They just wanted to get out fast. We'll we'll talk a little bit about that. And the uh, other thing is, Moderna they can crank out a lot more vaccine than Pfizer can, right? That's the other thing. Well, uh, it's yet to be seen. The the thing about Pfizer is it only takes one third of the dose level. So Uh you're only 30 micrograms versus 100 micrograms. So even if you, you, uh, Moderna still has to crank out three times more just to stay even. Uh (laughs) That's sort of interesting. (laughs) These little little tidbits that come into play. Um, Yeah, so I'm not... I'm not sure that Moderna will continue to manufacture Pfizer in terms of dosage, but I'll show you some of the uh, things that were actually what I did is I, I actually created a presentation um, uh, that kind of summarizes it. Cause unfortunately Moderna and Pfizer weren't exactly comparable. They didn't have, no, oh, we'll go, we'll go into it without some of it. Let me see what I've got here. I think this is the right, uh, the right one. Uh, let's go up the page here. And there we go. There we are. And so, um, I'll just start right here. How's that sound? Um, this is the race, right? This is the big race. And what's interesting about the race, uh, Pfizer against Moderna, is that basically these are the same technology platforms. They're both mRNA uh, uh, platforms. And you can see Moderna actually did all the discovery and preclinical work uh, by March 4th. They were already into human beings by March 4th. That's unheard of, right? You know, they'd only just characterized the whole virus on January 10th. So <laughs> you know, in less than a month, <laughs> about a month and a half, they went from all the way through all the animal studies all the way right into human beings. Pfizer took a little more time. <laughs> Pfizer actually didn't have a, t- a technology. They had to go and look for one. So they went to BioNTech. 
uh, by, in the United States, called BioNTech, but uh, uh, and uh, they had to license in the product, and they were actually still testing which one they wanted to license in already through June. So they had four different options with BioNTech, and they decided to go with this uh, this this one sixty two two B option, um, and uh, uh, they uh, then uh, and they were already in phase one. So they looked at the phase one results. And phase one, basically, you're you're looking at whether you're getting an immune response. In phase two, three, you want to make sure that that immune response is actually effective. So in phase one, well, we'll talk a little bit about those phases. So here we are. Moderna, you can see, actually started March 4th. Pfizer didn't start until about a month later in April, April 1st. And then Moderna was done with its phase one in June 1st. And basically, uh, Pfizer started its... So Pfizer, uh, the, the, this graph is wrong. I'm going to change it. But if Pfizer started its, its at, at the same time, so basically... Um, Pfizer caught up with Moderna by June, which is a lot. That's hard to do when you're a month behind. And then they surpassed them in phase two, three. Hmm. Right? So they not only got to the market earlier by 10 days, they actually enrolled 50% more people in the trial. I mean, that that's a remarkable achievement. And, and so they were better scaled um, to do the work than Moderna was. And what's interesting is the Pfizer design was a lot smarter and a lot more efficient and uh, a lot more complicated. So they actually executed better than Moderna. If I had to say, you know, who's been executed, uh, well, uh, that doesn't say anything about the technology, who has best technology. I'm just saying it, as far as getting to through, through a regulatory process, Pfizer had more experience and it showed. <laughs> and so what Moderna did, it signed in September, they looked around and said, you know what, we don't have enough minorities and ethnicities and we don't have enough older people in the trial. And we want to be able to test that. And so they actually slowed down their enrollment. They said, we're still going to go after 30,000 people, but we're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to now go after the elderly and, and minority classes uh, so that we can demonstrate more with our trial. So they actually slowed down their trial in September, and then they enrolled the people that they wanted to enroll, the targeted audiences, and then they continued on, and, and that's what they, what they did. Pfizer had the same problem, but you know what Pfizer did? They said, let's make it bigger, hmm. right? They're doubling down on their size. They're doubling down on their competitive advantage. They're, they're pushing hard on saying, okay, you know, we, we can manage this complexity and we don't think Moderna can keep up. And they were right. And so Moderna has had, but, but, the, but the thing is, as you point out, Moderna's had a few years to think about their platform and their manufacturing. And they actually have done some of, some of the manufacturing. They, so they knew what to put in, what to take out in terms of their manufacturing to make it uh, more stable. And so Moderna has an advantage actually in distribution. Uh, Pfizer has an advantage in terms of time. Um, so here is, as you know, we, we look at these endpoints. And the overview on both Moderna and Pfizer is the checks means that their current uh, clinical trials actually did demonstrate these things. So you can take those off the list of your worries. There's still in safety an issue where we don't have long-term uh, safety results because we've only known about this virus for nine months. The longest we could possibly have the safety is nine months. And in fact, all we have is, is you know, since it's gone into, into, into human beings, which is since March. So that's, that's uh, we have to just w- wait that out. And we'd like to get to a point where, we're, where the clinical trials, especially the, the, the large trials are, are at six months plus. Uh, if we were, you know, going to do this, and that, I think that's going to be a requirement uh, for from the FDA in order to go from an EUA or an emergency use authorization to a um, a full approval, like a a, a, bio, a biological license application. In effectiveness, it reduced the severities of symptoms, 
and it and it, it was a fully you know double blind placebo controlled trials. That's the best we do is the is is the randomized control uh, controlled trials. And um, you can see though that there's still a couple questions open about efficacy. We don't know about transmission. There's some has there there uh, interestingly Moderna uh, submitted something at the last minute afterwards to the FDA wasn't part of the discussion that says by the way we think we got to, uh, we got we think we have an impact on transition which is a huge. It's just a huge thing. Uh, oh, yeah, big deal. They just left. They just, they just had one one page, one, one little note footnote, uh, and then they um, then they uh, there's also we don't know about the reduction of duration of symptoms because we didn't test long enough yet, and we don't know uh, how they compare because they didn't do a side by side trial. Uh, they but uh, we're getting as close to a comparison between Moderna and Pfizer as we possibly can without actually you know unifying the trial. We don't have a, an understanding of the difference between this platform and other platforms, which would be interesting. Scalability, we don't know yet. You know, it looks like Moderna has an early lead, uh, but I think Pfizer is likely to catch up. The uh, durability, also, we can't know just because we haven't had it in people for long enough. So with that, let's take a look at the results. So here's phase one. And here, the idea was how much immune response do people have? And what was interesting about this is that after you take the vaccine, they compared it to um, both both groups compared it to convalescent plasma levels. And each time, if convalescent plasma levels were 100, Pfizer jumped up to about 150 after two doses, and Moderna went up to 180. So the immune response of circulating antibodies. That, that, that's the antibodies that are out there for being produced and, and, and don't get reproduced. They're not manufactured by the body. They're just out there circulating. Is, is 50 to 80% higher than if you actually got the virus. And that's remarkable. You know, you normally when we have take a, do a vaccine, we don't see, you know, it's usually a partial response. You don't, you, in order to get the full response, you actually have to have the disease. In this case, we have to have, actually have a better response to what we're interested in than the virus itself, which is interesting. Unfortunately, the, there's, there's, there was some quite, the, 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 the Moderna on the 71 plus, there was a notable waning after about nine, uh, after the, at the end of the study in the over 71 year old immune, immune response. And we'll start to think about that as we look at some of the clinical data later. It's still protective, we think, but it waned uh, and much more than the other age groups. The other big question was, are we manufacturing antibodies to actually continue to have memory so that when we go beyond the, when we finally dilute all the antibodies that are circulating, we have a memory to what's there. And the answer there is we have two different kinds of tests. The first is CD4 test. That's a memory helper B cells. that actually says, hey, there is something to attack. And the other are the T cells, the CD8 precursors. Uh, and those actually neutralize and, and eliminate the, the viral particles. Moderna only tested for CD4. At least they only reported CD4. And they were similar to, to, the, to the Pfizer. And you can say, see it's about a four-fold increase. Pfizer also looked at CD8, which I think is important because uh, you want to have as much of a response as possible. We'll talk about mutagenesis in a little while. And uh, uh, you can see that in, the, in this case, it was, it was 12-fold higher. Uh, slightly over 12-fold higher uh, uh, response than just getting the disease yourself. Again, a tremendous uh, accomplishment. So the result is, and when people say, you know, hey, should you take the vaccine? If, I, if I've already had the disease, what's your answer? Yes. 
Heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I want to have the 50% and the four times more. I don't want to sit there, you know, be right. Uh, so you, you, the answer is yes. You want, if you've had the disease, you still want to get the virus, uh, the, this, this, uh, this, this vaccine. And, and in both cases, you have to get two shots, right? In both cases, you need two shots. One, so with Pfizer, you only have to wait 21 days. And you see an impact after seven days after that second shot. With Moderna, their test was that they actually, you, you, you inject after 28 days, the second dose, and then you, they waited 14 days. So the amount of time that Pfizer is claiming that they need in order to have full immune, immune response is, is actually five weeks. While with, uh, with Moderna, it's almost, it's, it's over a month and a half, right? It's, it's like seven, seven weeks because you had to go mm. through a four week plus a two, two week assessment period, four weeks. So six weeks versus four weeks. Right? Let me also throw out, a, when, when you get vaccinated, one of the questions I'm getting from people is, do I get a card that I can show the airlines or I can show to whomever that says I have been vaccinated and both, both doses or whatever, so that I should be okay? That's what they're all wondering. Oh, yes. Uh, we'll, there'll be cards that are given out with your first dose, and you'll get a first stamp. And you're supposed to bring that card back again, get a second dose, and that will be oh, right now what we offer for identification. Now, some countries, WHO is coming out in March uh, with an entire kind of application they'd like to put on your, your, your cell phone that says, we'd like to see this kind of information on uh, everyone who's traveling around to, confer, to, 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 to be internationally correct. So, but within the United States, I think it'll just be the card. When you start to move international, I think you're going to need to have an international level, because uh, 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 they all vaccination ID or that vaccination testament. And you won't be traveling to the UK, that's for sure. Ah, ah, I'll go into <laughs> that if, if we have time. Mutated into some monster virus there or something, right? You know? Yeah, some really interesting things. You want me? I can talk about that. I want Interesting to go the in the clinical. Chinese curse sense of the word, it sounds like. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go back. I'll, I'll come back to that because at the end, because okay. it's a really important point. Um, and I want to make sure we. we let, let, let me just drain the slides here about the comparison between the Pfizer slides and the Moderna slides, and then we'll talk sure. about mutation. Here's Pfizer, forty-four thousand four hundred. Moderna, thirty thousand three hundred fifty-one. You can see half of them were in placebo, so only half of the people actually got the active. So when you look at the numbers, you'll see it's based on 15,000 people uh, for Moderna and 22,000, about 17, 18,000 for Pfizer. Um, the female and male, 50-50, that's good, right? No, there wasn't any bias in this election. White, 82% to 79%. Uh, uh, there was slightly higher uh, use because the Moderna stopped the trial, actually tried to get the concentration of, the, of this target population into the trial more actively than Pfizer was able to. Uh, so that's slightly better if, if you're if you're worried about uh, the uh, impact on uh, on an ethnicity or a race. Uh, you're slightly underrepresented as as a black person in both trials, which is disappointing. Uh, but you're not if you're Hispanic. You're 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 certainly a, a, or uh, and Chinese is slightly uh, approximately correctly represented as well. So the idea here is you want to make sure that you've got a representative very large part of the population. It's completely representative so that you can look at that and say, you know, I see myself in there. I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a white male between six, 18 and 65. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I can see I, there was plenty of people in my category uh, that got vaccinated. And, you know, I can feel pretty good about this. So in the case of black Americans and those at health risks, uh, it depends a little bit on which health risk you're at, uh, whether you're fully represented or not. You might want to wait a little bit 
depending on the health risk you've got. And you, if you, if you're, if you're immunocompromised, if you're pregnant, if you're a child, um, or if you have significant allergies, then those, those people were actually excluded from the trial completely, and we haven't tested those people yet. So, um, and 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 the and the and the, un, and, and the between sixteen and eighteen, the Pfizer group does test them, but they were underrepresented. They only had about a hundred people in that space. Yeah, so that's another test. one. Is everybody wants to get their kids back in school? And we're not uh, even testing that age group at all. Uh, no, uh, they will. They will start. Uh, for Pfizer announced that and Moderna both have announced that they want to start looking at, at at that. There are two ways of doing it. One is to start a whole new trial, which says you know these people are different. Uh, they're a different population. They have different immune response. Um, especially, especially for children under two, that's um, very often the case. When you get to be, you know, uh, over twelve, it's a little bit less the case, uh, where you're completely different from the adult immune response. But there is are significant differences, and so uh, we either bridge to say, you see, these differences are bridged. We can use now the data that we use for adults, and we're confident. Or let's start the trial over again and, and just, you know, enroll like like we would completely from a new. I think they're going to do bridging studies just because it's faster and they want to get out there faster. Uh, I think, and I think we'll be ready to do that uh, at the point of submission for the BLA, which we, we think is going to be about six months away. The BLA is the actual application right now. We're still under emergency. So we think about June, July timeframe, we will have tested for children and we'll have a general vaccine that's been approved by both these companies in that timeframe. So uh, here's the, here's the process we went through, you know, we 21 days apart, uh, for Pfizer, Moderna was 28 days apart, and then they had a seven-day, as I said, so it's a four-week uh, to efficacy endpoint. Uh, Moderna has a six-week to efficacy endpoint, and that becomes significant when you have to try to figure out how immune your people are as you roll this out, who's still susceptible, who's not susceptible. So Moderna takes a lot longer. Interestingly, J&J is a one-dose, and they have a two-week observation period, so we'll, we can hit full immunity of the J&J endpoint results in two weeks, not four and not six. That'll make a significant difference to policymakers and yourself if you only have to take one, one done and you're done and, and you know in two weeks you're ready to go. So if you're ready, ready for that big trip and you need to need a vaccine that's two weeks away, you know, you're too late for Moderna, you're too late for Pfizer, but, but, but J&J, you could do it. Hmm. That'll happen. That'll, <laughs> so there are some interesting little tidbits that, you know, come, come through here. here. Also, if, if you're concerned about trying to return to an area, a rural area, that's very hard to get to. If you're part of the vaccination group, we're worried, worried about this. You know, rural Wyoming, we only want to go there once. Take the J&J vaccine, right? Uh, and sure, sure, don't want to have Pfizer because that's going to have to bring out that twice at minus 20, though. Minus a, uh, uh, 70, that's a pain. But here's, so here's the case definition endpoint. You can see better, basically anybody who had any, any of these symptoms, and we talked about this last week, was said, aha, you've got that symptom. That means you've got COVID. Let me test for it. Yep, sure enough, you've tested positive and you had one of those symptoms. So you're in a special group and we're going to assemble all these guys together. At the end of the day, we had 170 people who got COVID in the Pfizer and 180 or so um, as I recall, I actually have over 200, 230 uh, uh, that, that were in the Moderna trial who got COVID. And uh, so that, 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 then we looked just at those 180 and just at those 180 and the, just at the, at the, at the, uh, at the people who got sick. So here is how efficacious it was, right? Here are the people who got sick and basically 95% of the people who are uh, the, 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 the efficaciousness, what we were looking for from the FDA was over 50%. So over 50%, if you had 200 people um, that um, 
that they, they, they got sick, you'd expect a, a hundred and a hundred if it was completely ineffective, right? If you move that to 150, uh, uh, so that you get 25, if you get 125 versus 75, that's a 50% efficacy rate and you're approved. In this case, out of the 200, we had 190. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we're not, and only 10 that were uh, vac- vaccinated. So 10 people vaccinated they, and 10 of them got sick uh, out of that group of 200 uh, versus versus uh, uh, the, the 100, 190 uh, in, the, in the placebo group who got sick. So that's how you look at the efficacy numbers overall. You can see it, it, the statistically these, these vaccines are the same. I'm still a little bit worried about the over 65 uh, 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 you know, number. I think this might be something that's real. And I think it might be that they don't have quite as much efficacy in people in Moderna over 65. Time will tell. Statistics say it should all even out. Uh, but I think it may be a real, it may be a real signal. We'll have to wait and see. You can see that if you're at risk, if you've got certain disease types, still your 95% uh, reduction in in the effect in, in, in the infection rates. If you're white, uh, 95% or, uh, reduction or, or 93.2, close enough statistically. If you're a community of color, 95 or 97% again effective. Male, 96 or 95%. Female, 93% effective. So, in every case. Um, these are vastly superior to most vaccines that are out there in terms of efficacy and certainly higher than the the endpoint we're looking for. So that's the good news is that if you go to the doctor right now and you get Moderna or Pfizer, as far as efficacy goes, probably doesn't make a difference. Uh, Statistically, it doesn't make a difference at all. So you shouldn't have to ask for one or the other. Uh, I want to watch that um, 65 plus number. Uh, so if you're over 65, you might have a slight preference to get the Pfizer drug uh, uh, based on this data, but it's only a slight preference. And again, statistically, this not, it is not significant. So that's the, and the other big thing was it prevents severe inf- uh, infections. So of the uh, Pfizer group, of that 180 I talked about, nine of them had severe infections. Uh, and uh, and of the, of the, um, of the uh, 230 or so, uh, Moderna people, 11 of them had the severe infections. Of the 11 that are on Moderna, none of them ha- uh, none of them were in the active group. All of them were in the placebo group. Mm-hmm. The chance mm-hmm. of that happening randomly is about 1 in 10,000. Mm-hmm. So it's a very significant result, and we think that this therefore does prevent active, uh, serious COVID disease in both cases. The um, uh, I think the I think that um, uh, Moderna actually had a broader set of endpoints here, so it actually tested for more different severe uh, responses, including kidney failure and all sorts of things it might be worried about. Again, they, and their their results were sl- were slightly better than Pfizer's. Pfizer's um, complained a little bit at the FDA. They said, you know, it was a little bit unfair. We had someone right at the border, is ninety three percent oxygen level. She never went to the hospital. Meanwhile, everyone who went to the placebo group, you know, turned green. I, I, I'm joking, but you know, they they, they, they they were saying that they thought that it wasn't really a true serious adverse event, but it had it classified as one. So that's what the numbers are. I think slowly but surely the statistics will work, work them the way, their way through, and you'll see no difference between the two drugs. We got about four minutes left. You're kidding? No. So here's Moderna. You can see the reduction in COVID cases. <laughs> we never got to the huh, 94.1. Here is uh, Pfizer. So people are going to say, do I have to take two doses? 
And the answer is, if you want to stay safe and be that 95%, you better take two doses. The best you can hope for with one dose of Pfizer drug or probably one dose of the Moderna drug is between 15 and 80% effectiveness. And that doesn't put you in herd immunity range if you're a community. So you take both doses. Um, and there may be an opportunity to look at single dose, but wait until afterwards when they've done a clinical trial. So let me talk about mutagenesis quickly, if that makes sense. Or, And that is here. We had, in, in, the, in the United Kingdom, they have a... A, a variation uh, where they've moved from in, in, in the London area from a virus that was only 28% representative in, in the group, in all the viruses in, in, in London to now six being 68% wow. in, in three weeks. And when you do all the math, it turns out that means it probably has penetrated the, that community 70% faster than the original virus. Hmm. And so that's how we got to this Holy cow! Look at look at this. It, it was almost at nothing, and all of a sudden, it became you know over half of what, what we see today, and that's how come they say it's seventy percent more transmittable. Now, you know how that happened. They think now they don't know for sure, but they think that there was an immunocompromised person in the mix who had a continuous long-term COVID infection, and they were immunocompromised, so they kept injecting them full of Regeneron. Uh, monoclonal antibodies. And slowly but surely, what happened was the virus got smarter and smarter and smarter, and it has a much, so the, the amount of mutagen, mut, the mutation that's, that's it had 14 mutations in a very short period of time. Well, geez. About two to four months period. And so we think that we artificially selected for this because we medicated this, this particular patient and he cultured this virus and then spread it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's what can happen when you put things under selective pressure. So we really have to watch, you know, what medicines we're giving people, manage it actively, uh, and 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 make sure that this doesn't happen to our vaccines. Because after a vaccine, uh, we got we got big problems. <laughs> so that's how how that's how it all works anyway. All right, boy, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah, I just uh, was watching that over the weekend, and I thought. Oh my God! Uh, I didn't realize this thing was so smart, you know. So. Oh yeah, there there are so many. I mean, it goes through thirty, forty thousand generations in a few days. So uh-huh. you know, you don't have to be that smart. You just have to have enough of you, and eventually you're going to break through, right? <laughs> yeah, battering at the door. Okay. Uh, well, we'll get you back uh, next week. Uh, Love for- to. I, yeah, we got so much more to talk about. I, I I'm sorry. I was supposed to talk about safety, and we can certainly go into that. The answer is these vaccines are statistically the same. Okay. That, across, across safety and efficacy. Well, I, and the other question is, how soon can I get it? And I've looked at the, for the state of Michigan, they issued their, their you know, how they're going to do it and what groups, starting off with the the, uh, the healthcare folks and then the, the, the older compromised folks and or people with other situations like that. And then anybody over 65, of course, Matt's just a young kid, so he'll have to wait till the final group. Yeah, right. Uh, and so, but I'm, I'm an older Missed it by 11 months. Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> missed it by just that much. Yeah. You got to start yeah. smoking again and tell people you're older than you are, Matt. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty wild out there for about four months. And uh, yeah. after that, I think starting around June, pe- people will basically, if they want the vaccine, I think they'll be able to get it. Yeah. That's pretty much what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, by early summer, if everything plays out like everybody thinks, we'll start to be okay. But it's probably going to be fall before things really start coming back to normal, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, economic normalcy, fall, kind of Halloween time frame, and then health normalcy even longer, unfortunately. But we'll we'll go into that next week. How does that sound? Uh, I, I got some yes. good, Fred. All right. Thanks very much, Fred Brown, our resident infectious disease expert. We'll be back again next week, uh, the 28th at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, everybody have a Merry Christmas. And uh, next week, we'll wish you a Happy New Year. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you've been watching the M Squared TechCast. Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Join your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan, next Monday at 3 p.m. If you can't listen live, audio podcasts of the show can be found at podcastdetroit.com.